This is the Big Pond. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon in Berlin. I'm on the bus. Next stop, Tempelhoferfeld. Now, this is our stop. Yes, are you Mr. Michigan? Quite a few people get off. I'm walking with Wolfgang, an 81-year-old Berliner. He's wearing a Michigan cap. We are heading to the Fest der Luftbrücke, the Berlin Airlift Festival at the former Tempelhof Airport, a celebration of freedom and liberty, 70 years after the end of the Berlin blockade. Wolfgang tells me in those days, in 1948, when the planes landed at Tempelhof Airport, there was a certain amount of anxiety. The Germans feared the Allied pilots, and the pilots feared the Germans. They had been enemies, and now the Germans were servicing their aircrafts, and friendships were developing. Wolfgang Leuke is one of over two million people who lived in West Berlin during the Soviet blockade. The blockade was one of the first tests of the Cold War, and 2019 marks 70 years since the end of it. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. I'm Nikki Matzen. And I'm Sylvia Cunningham. In this episode of The Big Pond, we learn about the Berlin airlift from the people who lived through it. It's a story that brought hope to a struggling city in ruins— when West Berlin became isolated from the rest of West Germany, like an island floating 100 miles inside of Soviet-controlled East Germany. It's a story about bringing happiness to children, coming of age at a time of war. It's also a story of an amazing feat in history, creating first in aviation, and a turning point between former enemies who began working together in massive coordinated teams to save two million people from starvation. This is the story of the Berlin Airlift. At the Allied Museum in Berlin, I'm getting a history lesson from curator Bernd von Kaska. We're headed inside an original British Hastings plane parked outside the museum. All right, entering the plane. Wow. You can't smell it, but we can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're in here uh, still after... 70 years you can smell the old oil and uh, the charm of an airplane from 1948. And what did this plane transport? Uh, this was uh, transporting cargo and uh, as you can imagine uh, also this plane was used for transporting coal. In 1948 Berlin was a divided city. The east was controlled by the Soviets. The West was occupied by the Allied troops, with sectors for the French, the Brits, and the Americans. On June 24th, the western part of the city was officially cut off by the Soviets, and the Allied forces had a decision to make. Here's archival footage from the United States Air Force. Russia had been slamming the doors to the city. They cut road traffic, then rails, then barges. So America, Britain, and France decided to supply the city by air to keep freedom's door open. Some experts called it an impossible task. More than two million Berliners prayed it wasn't. Within a month, 159 U.S. aircraft were delivering 1,500 tons daily. It gave the people hope. 
Additional American and British Historian Baron von Koska says the, the Berlin blockade was the first confrontation of the Cold War. And this first confrontation was uh, solved without uh, guns, without the atomic weapon, without uh, fighters in the air. It was solved by logistics, it was solved by flying lorries. West Berlin authorities made lists of what the city needed, and it was up to the combined airlift task force to sort out the logistics, how they would distribute thousands of tons of vital supplies like coal and food into the city every day. And, and keep in mind, everything was done without computers, without mobiles, uh, all this calculation, everything that's very essential for us nowadays uh, was done all by hand, uh, manual. I've seen people on huge lists, they needed ladders to keep these lists updated uh, because those lists were so long. Really? Yeah. During the Berlin airlift, the Allies worked out of three airports. Tempelhof, West Berlin's main airport in the American sector, Tegel in the French sector, and Gato in the British sector. The operation reached its peak in April 1949, when nearly 1,400 flights landed in 24 hours. That's roughly one airplane every 62 seconds, a rate von Koska says even today some airports in major cities don't reach. Um... Where was this plane before 1997, before it landed in the Allied Museum? Oh, it was the gate guard of the Royal Air Force in Gatow, Berlin. And when in 1994 the three Allied powers withdraw from Berlin, they closed uh, the British uh, military airport in Gatow, and they handed over this plane as a present to the Allied Museum. And we were glad to receive this present, but then we discovered the problems to get it from Gato to the Allied Museum. <laughs> and finally, we had to chop off the wings and had to hire the biggest transport helicopter in the world, which is, ironically, a Russian Mi-26 coming from Kiev to transport the symbol of the Allied Airlift into the Allied Museum. Wow. The Allied Museum's permanent exhibition pays tribute to the heroes of the Berlin Airlift, preserving their personal photos and trinkets from the city where they left their mark. On May 12, 2019, a ceremony at the Platz der Luftbrücke remembered the people who lost their lives during the Berlin Airlift. Beyond the Allied troops, Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa were involved in the effort. Veterans and their families came to Berlin for a weekend of commemorative events. What's your name? David Carsey. And you were part of the airlift 70 uh, years ago? Yes, 70 years ago, yeah. What, what are your memories or what do you remember Ooh, most? Working hard, busy, yeah. I was in the control tower at uh, uh, Gato in the signal section working on a mosque you know, taking, taking and receiving messages. Uh, I was 18, I think 19, 18, yeah. You were very, That's very young so. then. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But uh, we enjoyed it really. <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were part of something very yeah, special. Worth, worthwhile, yeah. 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 And it, is this your daughter? Daughter, daughter yeah. 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 We're very honored to be here. It's yeah. an absolutely fabulous time we're having. <laughs> I, and are you proud of your father? Oh, very much so, absolutely, yes. He just had his 90th birthday. Can you say your name? 
I was Jeeves. Jeeves. So you were involved in the Berlin area? I was Gatow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 18 at the time. Yeah. Like so. 90 now. 90. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to yeah. get him to write it all down, I think. Yeah. I don't think people like myself were really aware of what these people did. And um, because they don't talk about it very much at home. It's just something that they did. And then for me to be here now and go through this with my father-in-law is just incredible. And, and you know, I, I just admire them all so much now. I have a greater understanding of, of what actually took place. And uh, that's, I, I want to keep that going, you know, because we've got a granddaughter now and I want her to know about her great-granddad and, and things like that and just carry on. Because it's just amazing, amazing. At the ceremony, there is a special guest of honor, a 98-year-old American pilot. His sweet, spontaneous act of kindness during the airlift captured the hearts and attention of people worldwide. We're grateful to be here. God bless you. I'm honored to be a son of Berlin. Berlin is my Zweite Heimat. Danke. He received a standing ovation from the crowd after his remarks and I had the chance to speak with him here in Berlin. I'm Gail S. Halverson, the Berlin candy baller. As a young pilot, it wasn't easy for Colonel Halverson to come to Berlin. Like many others, he had lost people dear to him during the war. I had I taught one of my best friends to fly before the war, joined the Army Air Corps, sent to bomb Berlin. <clears throat> I killed him. Killed him always. Felt that I had a hand in that, that I got him started flying. Despite those feelings of animosity and regret, Halverson signed up to join the airlift. The people of West Berlin were starving. He remembers the shock he felt when he flew over Berlin for his first airlift delivery. And I just couldn't get over from the air. It looked like a moonscape down here. Just almost all buildings had damage, roofs empty. Rifts up to the sky. I had uh, flown during the war, of course, and seen different places, but for a city to be bomb marked all over the streets and uh, houses ripped apart still at that time. So it was an eye opener for me to see how the city was almost destroyed, but rightfully so because of the uh, things that Hitler had done. So it's, uh, it's not a very happy time. War is not. Uh, it affects people, whether they're in the front lines or at home under a bombing target. The devastation all throughout Berlin wasn't the only thing he noticed. At Tempelhof Airfield, German children flocked to the fence to watch the planes landing. They were curious and polite. Some even thanked the pilots in their broken English. They didn't ask for anything. Halverson reached into his pocket and gave them the only two sticks of gum he had. And then he watched. There must have been about 30 children at the fence, he recalls. But they didn't fight. They just happily split the gum into smaller and smaller bits and passed them around. And when that wasn't enough, they passed the wrappers around. So that each child could enjoy the scent. The kids were all over the place and waving to me and, and just for being vanquished and by a terrible war and 
the Russians were a bigger threat than, than anything, and uh, they, they want to stay free. And that the desire for freedom is so universal in the human spirit. And those kids didn't want anything to do with the Soviet system. So we had a, a real purpose to see that they got enough to eat by air alone. I, I enjoyed it. It was incredible to be part of that. And how did you feel the first time you wackled your wings and dropped parachutes with candy in them and saw the kids running after them? Well, it was about uh, three or four days after I met them at the fence. And I told them that's what I do. They said, how do you know which airplane to watch? We got to know which one to watch. I says, wiggle the wings and uh, watch the airplanes on the approach. When I'm wiggling the wings, that's me. Get ready for it. And they said, that's a good idea. Let's get started. So they, they were all up for it. And I bought, bought enough chocolate and gum. And, uh, I, I could, it was rationed. And I got about all I could. And got my buddies to buy some. And came back the next day and it was clear. And came over the field at first and wiggled the wings. And those kids went crazy. And they watched me every step of the way. And, uh, well, they didn't have any candy, you know. They didn't have anything like that. Such a luxury item. Yeah. And then to see it come out of an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I bet word spread quickly. Yeah, it did. And the kids would uh, line up on their approach to the airport, waving like mad. So we did it again and again. And, Crystal Jung of Voss was one of those kids who went to Tempelhof to watch the Berlin airlift planes coming in. She was 11 years old at the time. We reached her at her home in Oregon. We had heard about the Schokoladenbombe, the chocolate bombe, uh, Wiggly Wings, and sure enough, we were able to see Gail Halverson wiggling his wings and dropping little parachutes with chocolate. I never caught one. The boys were always faster. But this was of no importance to us. Important was that at that time there was someone who cared. That someone cared. It's a sentiment that many of the children who lived in post-war Berlin remember feeling because of the airlift. Like Roswitha Berry, who was seven years old. You know, it wasn't just the candy bombing. It was that the Americans were there to save us. And, um, and the British and the, the French and, of course, other allies helped. But it, was, it wasn't until then that we felt that we have a chance because we grew up in ruins. It's, it's hard to think about it because uh, um, at that time I didn't know any different. And it was fun. But when I look at it now and I see the films and I say, how did I ever survive that? See, those kids didn't have any. And all the sky came a whole ton of chocolate bars on little parachutes. It was a thrill. And the letters started to come immediately. And they said, well, uh, we, we didn't participate in the war. We, we had to be here. My aunts and uncles, dad and mom were all involved in the war effort. But I'm glad that you help us kids now afterwards. It wasn't their fault what happened. Absolutely not. They're thank you letters. Like a little, a little ray of yeah, hope as well. And maps. His maps. Most of them drew maps. German kids could draw a great map. <laughs> and 
that when you come down the straight so on, so turn right two blocks. I live in the corner in the backyard. I'll be every, there every day at two o'clock, drop it there. <laughs> and I, I'd try to do it. Where, of course, with that many airplanes, you couldn't deviate the flight path too much. It was quite an operation. It oh, yeah. Every yeah. few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it, it was worth it. The appreciation. Appreciation is a factor that can change lives. Of course, the chocolates for children is always great, but it was more for us that they were there to save us because we understood as young as we were that we wanted our freedom and to have that, we needed the Allies to do it for us, even so Germany had lost the war. But uh, I met one of the pilots eight years ago in Ogden, Utah, and uh, us Berlin kids surprised the veterans at their yearly meeting. And they couldn't believe it because they stood with the Berlin flag and the Hershey bars. And they said, we bombed, first we bombed them and then we fed them. And they said it was easier to feed them than bomb them. And they never realized it, never thought in their lifetime that they would meet the children that they saved. And so airlift veterans are very, very special to us. And we make sure that we always do something for them. My name is Vera Ella Mitrich from Hamstorf Runau. I can remember very good. I was just five years, six years old, but it was so just amazing. I live in the American sector, Friedenau and yeah. Steglitz, where all the Americans are coming. And when Gail come with the aircraft, you know, he makes this and we know he's wriggling, the wings. wriggling and the candies are coming. And I love Hershey chocolate. And it's so great, and I'm very thankful. And my mom, she was also very happy, and she let me know. And she said to me, Vera, maybe, she had a vision. Vera, maybe one day in a day you can say thank you. And now I can. I'm so proud of you all. I'm so thankful. And uh, I, I must stop. Uh, and God bless you all, Vera from Berlin, Germany. I'm so proud of you all. Thank you. To this day, the Berlin Airlift is considered one of the world's greatest humanitarian efforts. But it wasn't without sacrifice. At least 78 military personnel and civilians died in the effort. On May 12, 1949, the Soviets lifted the blockade and allowed supplies to begin flowing again into West Berlin. The storytellers of the Berlin Airlift are becoming fewer and fewer. But there's a message that carries on. As Colonel Halverson often says, from small things can come something great. For The Big Pond, I'm Nikki Motzen. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. And I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. Wunderbar together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans. Coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute.